recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Getting Saturdays. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh. Today is Saturday, January 7th, 2012. One thing I forgot to say yesterday that, that I wanted to say last night is that yesterday, org was three years old. In, um, in three years, Christogenia has spent most of the past 14 months in the top 100,000 websites in the United States and, and for a long time was in the top 100,000 websites in the world. It dropped out after a server crash, but it'll be back there. I think Alexa may have changed their algorithms also. But that's okay. It, it's um, getting 700 visits a day and, and um, sometimes more, sometimes a little less, but not too often, much less. It's um, I, I pray it'll continue to grow and praise Yahweh and pray that He continues to let it prosper. It, it's by far, and I shouldn't boast, right? It's by far the most visited and most utilized Christian identity website in the world in a very short time. So I have Yahweh to thank for that. Okay, tonight I'm going to discuss a paper that I wrote back in um, probably 2006, Shemitic Idioms in Genesis Chapter 3. It's a paper which I, I believe is my, my own seminal paper for, for two seed line. Maybe, um, I, I don't know, I, I, I haven't written many others about two seed lines specifically, so, so this is probably, if, if anybody wanted to see my work and, and writing on two seed line, this would probably be it. The Bible, a collection of very ancient books, and it is a collection of books, written in languages which have not been spoken in their original forms for many, many centuries, contains many enigmas for the average reader of modern times. And they always blame God when they don't understand things, right? The, the Bible is, it, it's the Bible's fault. This is especially true since many parts of the Bible, and it is the Old Testament being discussed here as well as the New, were written in parables and in the poetic language of prophetic vision. While it is certainly a sound practice to interpret Scripture in the context of Scripture, with the idea in mind that the word of Yahweh our God clarifies and explains itself, the 66 books of the Protestant Bible, only 65 of which are legitimate, or 72 for the Catholics, or even 80 for the original King James Version compilers of 1611, are not by themselves a complete revelation of the history of Adamic man, the white race. Neither should one be so arrogant as to believe that these books which we now have were the only inspired scriptures transmitted in antiquity. For not all of the books excluded from canon by early churchmen deserved such a fate. And not all of the books of antiquity survived until the Christian era. Neither can these books be completely understood all by themselves in any language because of their incomplete state and the antiquity of the languages they were written in. Yet, with sound, thorough studies in history and archaeology, many facets of the Bible are much better understood. Not only the historical books of the Bible, but the utterances 
of the prophets. Also, come to life with studies in these fields, and certainty of the word of Yahweh our God is surely made manifest. Furthermore, with studies of the ancient languages which the Bible was first written in, a sure understanding of that word is acquired. All these things are necessary. I understand that the Baptist attitude is that you only need that King James Bible. That is religious suicide. Unless one looks outside of the Bible to other ancient writings produced by kindred cultures during the biblical age, a proper understanding of many of the metaphors and idioms of the many biblical passages shall remain forever concealed. Here we shall look at part of an ancient Mesopotamian poem, the Epic of Gilgamesh, and see that it helps us understand certain obscure and often debated passages which are found in the third chapter of Genesis. The version of the Epic of Gilgamesh I'll be citing here, and some of the information concerning this epic, is from a book called Ancient Near Eastern Texts Relating to the Old Testament. It's a very, very scholarly work and a very um, voluminous work, which consists of inscriptions that the editors thought related to any of various parts of the Old Testament. And the inscriptions are from Egypt. The inscriptions are from the Hittites, from the Persians, from the Babylonians, and from the Assyrians. There are some Canaanite inscriptions, inscriptions at least identified as Canaanite, and, and there are um, not too many Hebrew inscriptions. That's just the way it is. It was edited by James D. Pritchard, published in 1969 by Princeton University Press. It's a very scholarly work without much of an agenda concerning any particular sect of, of religion. Here in, in this book, an Akkadian version of the Epic of Gilgamesh is found, and it's believed because fragments of the much older Sumerian version was, were found by archaeologists, that the Akkadian version is based upon it. Most of the Akkadian tablets containing the epic were uncovered by archaeologists who excavated the library of the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal, he's mentioned in the Bible, at Nineveh. The Assyrians were Shemites, according to Genesis chapter 10. They were cousins of the Israelites, who were descended from that Asher mentioned in Genesis 10.22. The prophets proved that out. Their language was Akkadian. Akkadian, not after the city Akkad, right? Sumer and Akkad. The Akkad was the district just above Sumer, and it was also a city. Their language was the lingua franca, which means it was the language of international commerce and diplomacy throughout the ancient world for a thousand years up to the Persian period. Actually, it was a thousand years up to the Babylonian period. Where, from the 6th century BC, it was eclipsed by Aramaic, and Aramaic became more or less the lingua franca until the coming of Alexander the Great and the beginning of the Hellenistic period when Greek became the language of trade and diplomacy throughout the world. The known Adamic world. The white world of the time.
Other fragments of this Akkadian version of the Epic of Gilgamesh have been found elsewhere, some of which are dated to the first half of the second millennium B.C. That would be 1500 to 2000 B.C., right? And it is clearly evident that the poem existed in Akkadian even before the time that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. The poem is known to have existed in Sumerian, the language of ancient Sumer, which was also written in, in cuneiform script, but was a different dialect, even before the time of Abraham, before 2000 BC. It is in Sumer, in the Chaldean city of Ur, where Abraham is first introduced to us in Scripture, Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. So this literature must have had an impact on Abraham because it was very widespread at this time. And we'll see evidence of that. The creation of epic poetry as a method of communicating myth and history was a pastime of Adamic cultures throughout the ancient world. Unknown to many, the Exodus account itself was written in he as it was written in Hebrew was originally written as an epic poem. There are other shorter examples of the genre in scripture, such as the Song of Moses, the Song of Deborah, that they're examples of epic poetry. Reading the Epic of Gilgamesh, the poem surely seems to set the precedent for the later Greek epics the epics about Odysseus, the Odyssey, Heracles, the travels of, of, of Heracles, and, and Jason, the story of Jason and the Argonauts. They are all tales of mighty men performing heroic deeds coupled with long travels to strange and exotic places. That is also the theme of the epic of Gilgamesh in, in many aspects. The character Gilgamesh like so many early Greek heroes, was said to have been formed by the gods. And to be himself, and I don't know how they get this ratio out of, out of genetics, and to be himself two-thirds god and one-third human. This is explained on, in ancient Near Eastern texts, page 73. If this brings Genesis chapter 6 to mind, it is surely not an accident. Gilgamesh is also mentioned several times by name in the Book of Giants found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. So this story must have been a famous story. He is mentioned by name in the Dead Sea Scrolls. For which see the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are designated by scholars as 4Q530 and 4Q531. The Book of Giants is an elaboration of the Genesis 6 account associated with the apocryphal Enoch literature, a collection of ancient Hebrew stories and prophecies which should not be ignored by serious Bible scholars. If nothing else, this, this certainly shows us that the Hebrews of biblical times did not exist in a vacuum that elements of literary tradition, of myth 
and culture and language were indeed shared with their kindred neighboring nations. In this Akkadian epic, from before the time of Moses and Abraham, Gilgamesh is a mighty man, endowed with superhuman size, who rules as a king over the Mesopotamian city Uruk, U-R-U-K, Uruk, which is the Erek mentioned in Genesis 10, 10, Genesis chapter 10, verse 10 in the Bible. Gilgamesh is portrayed as a greedy, rapacious character and a harsh ruler who cannot be challenged because he had neither rival nor equal. Therefore, the people of the land appealed to their god, their idol Anu, for assistance. With this appeal, the goddess Aruru, yes, that's her name, was, is beckoned to create another mighty giant, and she complies. And she created Enkidu, to be a rival to Gilgamesh. And Kidu, created in the wilderness of the steppe, out of the way of civilization and any contact with humans, and let me say that the Assyrian, the Akkadian word for steppe is Edun, becomes a great friend and protector of wildlife. And Kidu, the Enkidu character, becomes a sort of Tarzan come Dr. Doolittle of the ancient world. Probably the model for later stories of Tarzan and Dr. Doolittle. Soon Enkidu puts animal hunters and trappers in fear, protecting animals from them and putting them out of their means of living. The hunters. Seeking relief, a hunter then goes to Uruk and appeals to Gilgamesh to lend assistance against the mighty savage Enkidu. Rather than leave the city to confront Enkidu, Gilgamesh advises the hunter to subdue the savage giant by quite another method. And I will read from Tablet 1, Part 3, lines 40 to 45 of the Epic of Gilgamesh, Ancient Near Eastern Text, page 75. Go, my hunter, take with thee a harlot lass. When he waters, meaning Enkidu, when he waters the beasts at the watering place, she shall pull off her clothing, laying bare her ripeness. Ancient poetic pornography. As soon as he sees her, he will draw near to her, reject him, will his beasts that grew up on his step. The hunter does as Gilgamesh instructs him to do. And by carrying out the plot, he is quite successful. Here from part 4, lines 16 to 39 of the same tablet, the lass freed her breasts, bared her bosom, and he, meaning Enkidu, possessed her ripeness. Of course, Enkidu doesn't know she's a whore. She was not bashful, as she welcomed his otter. She laid aside her clothes, and he rested upon her. She treated him, the savage, to a woman's task, as his love was drawn unto her. For six days and seven nights, Enkidu comes forth, mating with the lass. After he 
had his fill of her charms. He set his face toward his wild beasts. On seeing him, on seeing Enkidu, the gazelles ran off. The wild beasts of the steppe drew away from his body. Startled was Enkidu as his body became taut. His knees were motionless, motionless, for his wild beasts had gone. And Kidu had to slacken his pace. It was not as before. In line 29. But now he had wisdom, broader understanding. Returning, he sits at the feet of the harlot. He looks up at the face of the harlot, his ears attentive as the harlot speaks. The harlot says to him, to Enkidu, Thou art wise, Enkidu, art become like a god. Why, with the wild creatures, do you roam over the steppe? Come, let me, meaning the whore, lead thee to ramparted Uruk, the walled city, to the holy temple, the abode of Anu and Ishtar, where lives Gilgamesh, accomplished in strength, and like a wild ox, lords it over the folk. And Kidu, in the poem, then goes on to confront and challenge Gilgamesh, but he loses the struggle. After which he instead becomes his close companion and his fellow adventurer in many later exploits. Now notice in the, in, in the section of this epic which I've read, in part four it lines 29 and 34 on the first tablet of the original. We see parallels to Genesis chapter 3, verses 5 and 7. There's a footnote in ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament. There's a footnote in the book written by the translator which says that at, at line 29, and I will read line 29 momentarily, it says the general parallel to Genesis 3-7 is highly suggestive. I would say, no kidding. This parallel is, in fact, more than merely highly suggestive, and there is no similar footnote in this poem in ancient Near Eastern texts for line 34, which certainly is comparable to Genesis 3.5. Let me read again Tablet 1, Part 4, line 34 of the Epic of Gilgamesh. And there it says, Thou art wise, and Kidu art become like a god. This is what the whore tells Enkidu after he comes into his sexual awakening. And we have Genesis 3, 5. For God does know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And Kidu comes into his sexual awakening, and the whore tells him he's become like a god and he is wise. The serpent is trying to coax Eve into her sexual awakening, and he tells her that her eyes shall be opened, and she will be like a god. Ye shall be as gods. The Epic of Gilgamesh, part 4, line 29, but now he had wisdom, broader understanding, after he had sex with the whore for seven days. Genesis 3, 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good 
for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat, and the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves, in the King James Version, aprons. Notice also that in the ethic of Gilgamesh, the beauty of the harlot is, is referred to as ripeness. Eve, desiring the angel, noticed that the tree was good for food. The fruit was ripe. Now indeed, to the rational mind, it should be perfectly evident that the ancient Assyrians reading the Epic of Gilgamesh related one sexual awakening with the attainment of wisdom and understanding. And that by attaining such understanding, one was perceived as becoming like a god. For in Kidu, surely had no knowledge of sex before meeting the harlot, and it cannot be assumed that Eve had any knowledge of her sexuality before meeting the serpent. This Akkadian story was being copied and recited during the very time when Moses was writing the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And therefore, the idioms of the language are clearly contemporary with the time of Moses and were used by a kindred people speaking a closely related Shemitic dialect. Is the Genesis 3 account also about sexual seduction and awakening? Well, of course it is. <laughs> and so, as it says in Genesis 3-7, the eyes of them both, Adam and Eve, were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. In my Thomas Nelson Publishers King James Study Bible at Aprons, a footnote says, girding covering. The Geneva Bible got it straight. It says that they made for themselves breeches, pants. Adam and Eve, ashamed of themselves after their sexual awakening, attempted to conceal their nudity by covering their bodies, and specifically their loins, as that type of garment is sufficient enough to inform us, thereby hiding the scene of the crime and the source of their feelings of guilt. You don't sin with your left hand and cut your right hand off. Note that Adam and Eve were naked before their seduction, Genesis 2.25, where it says that they were not ashamed. The Genesis chapter 3 account is all about sexual seduction. Written in a parable containing ancient Shemitic idioms, which the Shemitic epic of Gilgamesh certainly helps us to understand. Now the next question to be answered must be, who is the serpent? 
Or did Adam and Eve have sex with a snake or a tree? The serpent is introduced to us in Genesis 3.1. And, and let me say as an aside that there are some clowns who like to take Genesis 3.1 and try to turn it into a biology lesson, right? That they try to use Genesis 3.1 as proof that, that God created all the two-legged creatures who are called beasts later on in the Bible. Well, that's not true at all. It's actually a pretty foolish view of Genesis 3.1. It's a very childish view of Genesis 3.1. Because in Genesis 3.1, we see, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And we don't even know at this point, we have no indication that this serpent is really just an allegory for a person. And if we don't know that, then we don't know that beast of the field is allegories. It is an allegory for people, as some fools try to assert. Actually, what we learn in Genesis 3.1 is only that because the serpent, the real literal snake, is the most subtle of all the beasts of the field, the literal four-legged creeping and, and walking and ruminating and, and, and other beasts, which Yahweh God had made. For that reason, because the serpent is the most subtle animal of all the other animals, for that reason we are going to entitle this entity which seduced Eve, we're going to name him after the serpent. That's all Genesis 3.1 is saying. It's not saying anything more than that. It's giving us the reason for why this individual is being called a serpent. Many scoffers assert that this statement somehow proves that the serpent was part of the original creation. And it must be a literal snake. This statement is merely comparing the serpent to the beasts of the original creation. That's all it's doing. Examine a similar statement. Now, the jaguar was more luxurious than any automobile that Chevrolet had made. The jaguar is, of course, not manufactured by Chevrolet. So neither is this verse stating that Yahweh created this serpent individual which seduced Eve into Genesis 1 creation. It's not saying that either. One may protest that Yahweh God created all things, as Scripture reminds us in so many places, and of course it is true that he did. Yet, while the Genesis 3 serpent may have been, may have been created by Yahweh, or it may have been a corruption of Yahweh's original creation, which we will get back to later, which we witness men doing in many places today. Yet it was not even necessarily a part of the original creation here on earth. On earth, here, and original. As Clifton likes to say, Clifton Emmeheiser likes to say, Yahweh God created the horse and he created the donkey. But he sure as hell didn't create the mule. The Genesis account of creation found in the first two chapters of the book is neither a technically scientific 
nor a historically complete record. Rather, it is a prophetic vision of the stages of creation given from an earthbound perspective. You can't have days because the sun wasn't created till the fourth day. For that reason, it is quite geocentric. And the sun and the moon and the stars are described as mere lights in the sky, when now, through scientific observation, we know with certainty that they are indeed much more than that. The days of Genesis chapter 1 are better understood to be ages, a meaning which the original Hebrew word used in that chapter surely bears. As our own science tells us, the planet is certainly much older than 6,000 or so years, or if you are an advocate of the Septuagint chronology as I am, 7,500 or so years. Once these Genesis chapters are properly understood, it is realized that there is no conflict between the Bible and science, and when I say science, I mean true science. I do not mean evolution, which is in fact a godless religion. The earth is surely many ages whether it be hundreds of thousands or millions or even billions of years old. And many things happened here before the beginning of history as history is recorded by our white Adamic race. The fossil and geological records offer much proof of this in spite of the insane objections presented by evangelical fundamentalists. With all of this being said, the foundation is now laid for an understanding of the origin of the serpent with the idea in mind once the language is understood, that the word of Yahweh our God clarifies and explains itself. At Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, we find this. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought, and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent has to be a reference to Genesis 3. Called the devil and Satan. Now we know who the serpent is. Which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. In Revelation chapter 20 verse 2 in another prophecy we again see the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, where it is certainly evident that the serpent is an enduring entity and not just some snake in the grass. These are the angels which kept not their first estate, described by the Apostle Jude in his epistle in verse 6. We also find at Luke chapter 10, verse 18, that Yahshua Christ exclaims, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven, Satan is the old serpent called the devil. And here this Satan is again associated with serpents and scorpions. Luke 10.19 Surely these are figurative human serpents and figurative human scorpions in the accompanying remarks at Luke 10.19. And let's read from Luke chapter 10 verses 17 through 20 because all of the ideas that this discussion which Christ has with the apostles are certainly related. These are not dysfunctional people who can't hold a thought in a conversation. All of these ideas in Luke 7 and in, in Luke 10 chapter, verses 17 through 20 are indeed 
interconnected. Verse 17. Then the 72 returned with great joy, saying, Prince, even the demons are subjected to us by your name. And he said to them, I beheld the adversary, Satan, falling as lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given to you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and upon all the power of the enemy. So we see that the enemy consists of demons. The book of Enoch tells us that the children of bastards will be evil spirits in the earth. They are the demons. We see that the demons, the adversary or Satan, the serpents and the scorpions and the enemy are all the same entity. And no one by any means shall do you injustice, but in this you must not rejoice that spirits are subject to you. Rather, rejoice that your names are inscribed in the heavens. Bear in mind that Yahshua Christ, being one with the Father from the beginning, surely witnessed the things which happened. before he was born on earth as a man. So it is evident that the serpent, and the phrase that old serpent must surely refer to the serpent of Genesis, is one with Satan, is one with the devil, and the upper epithet, the other epithets giving to him, given to him and to his kindred and to his descendants throughout the scripture. The serpent of Genesis 3 is a member of that race of angels which revolted from God and were cast out into the earth as described in Revelation chapter 12. I beheld Satan falling as lightning from heaven. We are not told when this happened, but we can only imagine that it happened sometime before the creation of Adam. It had to, but during the later ages of creation. We are not told how it happened. We're not told whether the serpents were in space, if we want to imagine that as the literal heaven, as many like to believe, or whether heaven is an allegory for the sovereign rule of God's laws and government here on earth as it is often used in the scripture. Either way, one may like to think about it, doesn't even really matter. If the angels which left their first estate were a race of people who rebelled from God here on earth before Adam, who knew good and then became evil, came to know evil, or whether they fell from the literal heaven and the sky, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which way. You can't prove it one way or another, so it doesn't matter. Let me say as an aside that some of the earliest Greek myths repeat these stories that were found among the Hebrews. If you open up the pages of Apollodorus or Strabo or Diodorus Siculus, you'll read the Greek myths which state that the... Um, the python was a giant serpent that Apollo defeated in a battle at Delphi. That the typhon, very similar story, 
was a giant serpent, serpent that Zeus cast out of heaven into the ground. And Strabo says that he landed in Syria. That's the truth. So the Greeks had, and these are pre-Christian Greek stories, the Greeks had similar stories in their myths, which we see that same language elucidated in the New Testament. Christ was talking to us in symbols and parables, and he was talking about things that the people would have understood from Greek mythology. And he was using those symbols and, and those stories to manifest to us spiritual truths and physical truths about the events of pre-Adamic history and the dawn of our race. Either way, one wants to think about where the serpent fell from doesn't really matter. The fossil record shows there were many races of humans here before Adam, the first Aryan white man. There was Neanderthal man, there was Cro-Magnon man, they really existed. Some of them are still with us today, Neanderthal man at least, apparently. They're not us. Any one of these early pre-Adamic races may have been that race of angels or may have been just another of their corruptions because the rebellion is all about the corruption of God's creation. Throughout Scripture, angels appear as men and are often even indistinguishable from men. And significant in this regard is the Genesis story concerning Lot found in Genesis chapters 18 and 19. If the serpent was a man, although not an Adamic man, but if they were angels, they would have had to be white. If the serpent was a man, what is the tree which is in the midst of the garden? Genesis 3.3, which Adam and Eve ate from in the temptation. Genesis 2.9, after Yahweh puts Adam in the garden. Genesis 2.9 states, And out of the ground made Yahweh God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil apparently don't grow out of the ground, nor are they good for food, but they are in the midst of the garden. Genesis chapter 2 is not a historic record. Rather, it is a prophetic vision representing past events written in the form of a parable. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil are not literal, but figurative trees. Literal trees only have knowledge in fairy tales and in Hollywood, the city of the fallen angels. In Proverbs... Proverbs 3.18, the phrase, tree of life, appears as an idiom, where it indeed seems to signify a means of sustenance or a way of salvation or preservation. At Genesis 3.22, it is seen that Adam must put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat 
and live forever, thereby recovering from his fall into disgrace. In Revelation 22.14, we find the tree of life mentioned again, and it is reserved for those who shall be permitted entry into the new Jerusalem, the city which descends from heaven, the twelve tribes of Israel. In John 15, 1-7, Yahshua tells us that he is the true vine. And he explains that those who abide in him, they are the branches. In John chapter 6, 31-51, Yahshua explains that he is the bread of life, and that those who eat such bread shall live forever. The only viable conclusion is that Yahshua Christ is the figurative tree of life. And that those descendants of Adam who abide in and keep the ways of Christ are given to remain a part of that figurative tree, thereby bringing forth righteous fruit. John 15, 5-8. The purpose of fruit is to produce more trees of the same kind. Even today, families are seen as trees. And as they grow, they branch out. And their various elements are called roots stems, branches, obeying the biblical commandments to remain a separate people and not to commit fornication, which is race mixing, righteous fruit can only be pure-blooded Adamic offspring of the children of Israel. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit, and a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. The words of Christ. The tree of life. Being a figurative tree, it only makes sense that the tree of knowledge of good and evil is also a figurative tree. Men are often portrayed as trees in the Bible. For instance, in Ezekiel chapter 31, where the Assyrian was the tallest of all the trees in the garden of God. At Matthew chapter 3, chapter 7, chapter 12, Luke chapter 3, chapter 6, trees in all those places in the Bible. Men are portrayed allegorically as trees. If the children of Yahweh can be branches upon the true vine, the tree of life, then those angels who rebelled against Yahweh and who were cast out into the earth or their descendants can surely be the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which Adam and Eve ate from. They had the knowledge of good in their first estate which is their first condition, and they left it, rebelling against God, they acquired the knowledge of evil. That the act of eating can be an idiom for sexual relations, we see in Proverbs 9.17 and in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 20. Notice also in those quotes from Gilgamesh, which I supplied above, that the harlot was twice described with a noun usually described, used to describe fruit. That her nakedness was described as ripeness. Just like you would describe the fruit of a tree. Proverbs 9.17 says, Stolen waters are sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Now, many scoffers say, well, the word eaten really isn't there. While the word eaten is only inferred and added by the translators, it is indeed inferred. Bread in secret, stolen waters, do not refer to actual food and water. 
reading Proverbs 9 leading up to verse 17, we see that the context is a discussion of loose and foolish women. The writer of Proverbs is warning us to stay away from loose and foolish women because stolen waters are sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Sex, illicit sex, yeah, it's pleasant. Well, it happens, and then after that, it's hell. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 20. Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. She eats because she's adulterous. Well, she's not a McDonald's. She's stealing water in secret. She's eating bread in secret. She's having sexual intercourse with men who are not her husband. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. She's not exactly wiping the mouth on her face. Verification for the interpretation of the trees of the Garden of Eden is found in the parable of the wheat and the tares and in its explanation. In the 13th chapter of Matthew, from Matthew 13, verses 24 and 25, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while the man slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And from Matthew thirteen thirty-seven through 39, we see, He that sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. The tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil, that old serpent. Yahweh created all things. Yahweh created all things which Yahweh created. He cannot be blamed for sowing the tares. Did Yahweh create the tares? Christ denies it. Christ says the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The errors and the devices of men or of angels, the bastards, the things which are corruptions of God's creation, cannot be blamed on God, should not be attributed to God. When could Satan, the adversary, the enemy who sowed them is the devil, have sowed tares among the wheat? Genesis chapter 3 is not a historical record. Rather, it is a parable representing events which occurred very early in the history of the Adamic race. By seducing Eve, the enemies of Yahweh were able to sow tares among the wheat. There have been many other women and men like Eve down to this very day. After the seduction of Eve, she was warned that in sorrow... Thou shalt bring forth children, Genesis 3.16. That's a natural result of her sexual foray. She was also told, Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee, Genesis 3.16. That's the natural result of her incontinence. Yahweh says, No, your desire will be to your husband, not to the serpent. 
her desire was for the fruit which the serpent offered her. Genesis chapter 3 is indeed a parable about sexual seduction and an understanding of the Semitic idioms as they appear elsewhere in the Bible and also in the contemporary writings such as the Epic of Gilgamesh surely helps us to comprehend as much. Another result of Eve's seduction was that her seed or offspring would have perpetual enmity with the seed or the offspring of the serpent. The serpent is the adversary. The serpent is that old serpent, the devil and Satan. Once these two parties or groups of people, or races, if you will, are properly identified, it is wholly evident that there has indeed been perpetual enmity between them. Right from the days of Cain. This enmity has manifested itself at many intervals throughout history and is recorded not only in the Old and New Testaments, but in the annals of our history down to this very day. Ted Whelan would say, well, what about Genesis 4.1? Ted Whelan, the clown, that says that Eve committed a thought crime. I could pick on Ted Wheeland. I've offered him a debate. I've written him letters. He refuses to play. As it stands in Hebrew, Genesis 4.1 is a demonstrably corrupt verse. And so it cannot be relied upon as a scriptural authority. Scholarly sources have attested that the Hebrew of Genesis 4.1 is corrupted. And so it can hardly be properly translated. The Interpreter's Bible, Volume 1, page 517, attests to the fact that the Hebrew to Genesis 4.1, as it stands, is corrupt. Cain was certainly not the son of Adam, which can be discerned in several other places. You need two or three witnesses to establish a fact. Genesis 4.1 does not stand to establish the fact that Cain was the son of Adam. It's not two or three witnesses, period. There are many witnesses which establish the fact because there are many witnesses that Cain was not the son of Adam. First, the genealogies provided at Genesis 4, 16 through 24, and Genesis 5, 1 forward do not associate Cain with Adam. Secondly, statements found in the New Testament show that Cain was the son of the serpent, the devil, or Satan such as those found in Luke chapter 11, verses 46 through 51, in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 47, and at 1 John 3.12. 1 John 3.12 plainly states that Cain was of that wicked one. That's a noun. It's a substantive. There's no biblical evidence that Cain ever spoke to the serpent, that the serpent ever taught Cain anything. The serpent can't be Cain's spiritual master or spiritual father. There's no witness whatsoever to substantiate that. In reality, the serpent was his natural father. As the Aramaic Targum state in their versions of Genesis 4.1, note that in Hebrew or Greek, there's no word for half-brother, and the term never appears in the Bible, although many half-brothers and half-sisters appear elsewhere in Scripture.
Whether Adam's progeny are mentioned or count, wherever Adam's progeny are mentioned or counted, it can be demonstrated that Cain is always excluded, such as in the statement that Enoch is seventh from Adam, or Noah was the eighth preacher of righteousness. John 8.44 states that certain Judeans were all their father the devil. These Judeans claimed to be Abraham's seed, which is true of the children of Esau, but they denied ever being in bondage, which is not even true of the children of Esau. In Romans 9, verses 1 through 13, Paul explained that not all Judeans were Israelites. Some descended from Jacob and some descended from Esau. That's why he goes on to compare Jacob and Esau. The Edomites, the descendants of Esau, could indeed claim to be Abraham's seed, and the Edomites were never in bondage except when they were in bondage to the Israelites for about 300 years. While the Israelites had been in bondage in Egypt and later in Assyria and in Babylon, but the Pharisees claiming never to have been in bondage, well, Christ proved time and time again they really didn't know their Bible. The Edomites had become a part of the kingdom of Judea and converted to Judaism about 130 years before the birth of Christ. This event is mentioned by the Greek geographer Strabo, writing circa 25 AD. It's explained in detail by the Judean historian Flavius Josephus, writing approximately 70 AD. Because Esau married Canaanite women, and the Canaanites had previously intermixed with the Kenites, and the Kenites were the descendants of Cain, along with the Rephaim, and the Rephaim were the descendants from the giants of the Genesis 6 account, and with several other non-Adamic peoples mentioned in Genesis chapter 15 that we see there in verses 19 through 21 that the Canaanites mixed the, the Kenites and the Canaanites mixed with. Therefore the descendants of Esau were also descendants of Cain. Because we are told that those who belong to Yahshua Christ hear his voice and follow him, it can be safely inferred that the disbelieving Judeans who contended with him were not Israelites, they were Edomites. And Yahshua Christ told them that they were not his sheep, which is why they did not believe him. They weren't his sheep in the first place, John 10, 26. These are those who claimed to be Judeans, but were actually of the synagogue of Satan. Revelations 2, 9. Revelations 3, 9. And so are their lineal descendants today. Seeing that the disbelieving Judeans were descended from Cain, and so ultimately from the serpent, John 8, 44, 1 John 3, 12, and Matthew 13, 39, all demonstrate that, three witnesses. It is then understandable how Yahshua could hold them responsible for all the blood of the prophets beginning with Abel, whom Cain slew, which is recorded in Luke 11, 47 through 51. It would have been criminal on the part of Christ to have made such a charge if it had not been literally true that the blood of Abel was upon their race. The only way the blood of Abel could have been upon their race is if they descended from Cain. That's the only way that could be true. 
And Yahshua Christ is not a liar. The Jews are the descendants of Cain, the seed of the serpent. The Greek word which the King James Version renders generation in Luke is much properly and more appropriately translated race because it's speaking of fathers and sons both near and remote. People who could not have all lived at the same time. The word has to be translated race to make any sense at all. Both the Kenites, 1 Chronicles 2.55, and the Canaanites, such as the descendants of Judah's son Shelah, Genesis 38, 1 Chronicles 4, 21 to 23, both of them group, both of those groups also infiltrated ancient Israel, and especially the tribe of Judah in the earliest time, times and perpetrated much evil. We have recorded examples of, of a descendant of Cain slaying the priest of Yahweh for Saul in the story of Doug the Edomite in 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. This enmity is clear all throughout the Old Testament. It is those disbelieving Judeans, the Edomites and other Kenites and Canaanites, who long ago adopted Judaism, who caused all the trouble for the followers of Christ in the early centuries of the Christian era, and they're at it again today with the support of our derelict clergymen and dishonest, ignorant politicians. After the return to Jerusalem from Babylon in the late 6th century B.C., the original Hebrew dialect fell into disuse among the Judeans in favor of closely related Aramaic, which was the common language of trade and diplomacy throughout the Persian Empire at that time. Therefore, in order for people to properly understand the scriptures at Sabbath services, religious leaders had to translate them from the Hebrew into Aramaic. They were very close dialects, but they weren't that they were not similar enough that you could readily understand the differences. That this practice was indeed extant can be determined in the text of the book of Nehemiah, chapter eight, verses seven and eight, where the practice is described. Although Greek became widely known and commonly used throughout the East after the 4th century BC, and supplanted Aramaic as the lingua franca of the region, Aramaic continued to be spoken locally by many of the native peoples of the East. It is actually Aramaic, which is called Hebrew in the New Testament, even though it's called Hebrew in the New Testament. While it is certain that many quotes from the Old Testament which are found in the New Testament were taken directly from the Septuagint, from the Greek, the Septuagint being the Greek translation of the Old Testament scripture. It is just as certain that Aramaic translations of scripture were also in use at the time in which the Gospels were written. Ephesians 4.8 is one quote from the Old Testament, given by Paul, which agrees with the Aramaic version of the Old Testament, but it doesn't agree with the Masoretic or the Septuagint texts. Without the Aramaic Targums, we may be inadvertently led to believe that Paul misquoted Scripture in Ephesians 4.8. But he didn't. The version that he quoted was, was identical to the Aramaic Targums in that instance. The Aramaic Targum called Pseudo-Jonathan, and I'll read it. It says in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, 
And Adam knew that his wife Eve had conceived from Samael, the angel of death. And she became pregnant and bore Cain. And he was like those on high and not like those below. And she said, I have gotten a man from the angel of the Lord. Another, palace, another Targum, the Palestinian Targum, says it differently. And we'll talk about this in a few minutes. And Adam knew his wife Eve, who had desired the angel. And she conceived and bare Cain. And she said, I have acquired a man, the angel of the Lord. While it is evident that neither of these Targums may perfectly represent whatever it was that the original text of Genesis 4.1 may have said, because it certainly is corrupt, it is also evident that something is indeed missing from the Hebrew of Genesis 4.1 as we have that verse today, and subsequently it's also missing from the Greek translation of it found in the Septuagint, so it was missing at a very early time. It is further evident that early Aramaic interpretations of Scripture, such as this Palestinian Targum and the Targum Jonathan, attempted to compensate for what they believed was missing from Genesis 4.1, and that is why they read like they do. Surely it is obvious that those who wrote the Targums did not see a snake and apple story in the text of Genesis chapter 3. Aside from the Aramaic Targums and the passages from the New Testament, which I've cited here, there are other apocryphal writings which support the assertion that the Genesis chapter 3 account represents sexual seduction. Among these are 4 Maccabees chapter 18, verses 7 through 8, the Protovangelion chapter 10, the Protovangelion of James, an apocryphal book, among many others. These writings do not have their source in the Talmud of Judaism. Those fools who claim that two seed line, the, the two seed line interpretation of Genesis chapter 3 is based on the Talmud, those people are morons because it's not, not at all. There are many apocryphal scriptures which are not Talmudic in origin. which demonstrate the truth of our interpretation of Genesis chapter 3. Like most of the Hebrew scriptures, the apocryphal books also were later taken in, expounded upon, and perverted by the Jewish Talmudists. There's no doubt. A proper understanding of Genesis chapter 3 is of great importance in acquiring a proper understanding of not only all the rest of the Bible, but of history also. In the context of the Bible, childish tales about snakes and apples are outright deceptions and are the very reason why our race is in such trouble as it is today. For at this very moment, the Jews, the Arabs, and all of their kin, and they have other people, many other people related to them who are not identified as Jews and Arabs, they are leaving the world down a path of destruction. These people are indeed descended from the ancient Canaanites, the Edomites, the Kenites, the Rephaim, and related tribes. So they are the descendants of the serpent, the devil, and Satan of Genesis chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 12. Who deceives the whole world, Revelation 12.9. They are the Antichrist of 1 John chapters 2 and 4 and 2 John 7. 
They are currently gathering with others of the heathen nations for battle, hoping to finally destroy the white Adamic race, the remnant which are indeed, for the most part, the true descendants of the Old Testament children of Israel. As described in Revelation chapters 16 and 20, and in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Those who insist upon promoting snake and apple stories are themselves among the number of the deceivers. From, Re- from the King James Version, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, reads thus, And I saw an angel come out, come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on a dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And Revelations chapter 20, verses 7 and 8 say, And when a thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations. There are several periods, and, and, and I, I've written my entire Christ-like book in my Revelation book since I wrote this essay, and, and I can profess to have a slightly better understanding now. But in 2006, I wrote that there are several periods with which this thousand years has been identified. One is from the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD to the admission of Jews into Britain after the Norman conquest in 1066. I now totally reject that. I doubted it in 2006, as we will see from my text here, but I now totally reject that. It's, it's a um, British-Israel interpretation, and um, the British-Israel people, they tried to make the entire Bible revolve around only the people of Britain. The people of Britain are only a small part of the children of Israel. One more likely is from the time that the Jews began to be publicly excoriated and separated from society. This began under the emperor Constantinus, a son of Constantine the Great, who ruled in the 4th century, and it lasted until the feudal system was replaced with Jewish capitalism in the 15th century. And that is true. And, And it finally culminated with the French Revolution. But it was a long historical process. It is Jewish capitalism which has been the power behind all of our wars of the past few centuries and is the power behind globalism, multiculturalism, and all the dangers we face today. It is the power that the Jews have through capitalism and their chokehold on the white Christian nations through their central banking system that has allowed the Jews, Satan, to go out and deceive all the nations and gather them to battle against the children of Israel. There are no ghosts. There's no little spiritual Satan running around. There are no goblins running around who have deceived the world today. Neither can a single man survive a thousand years and do such things. But a race of people certainly can do it, and indeed they have. Satan is not a ghoul. Satan is not a spirit running around deceiving people with horns and a pitchfork. The no Satan people, that's the image that they are trying to defeat. And, and I can't blame them, but Satan, 
they have to realize is actually this entire race of people who have always been opposed to God, who have always been opposed to us, and there is no doubt that that is what the Scripture teaches. Many scoffers ask why that if two seed lying were true, it is not mentioned in the Old Testament. I would say that the entire Old Testament story is the story of the results of the sin in the Garden of Eden. The entire struggle between the diverse groups of people in the old Adamic Oikumene, the Adamic white world, all of that struggle is the result of the curse of Genesis 3.15, which says that there will be perpetual enmity between the descendants of the serpent and the descendants of the woman. The Old Testament is the story of two seed line. It was said of Joshua Christ in Matthew chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, after he gave the parable of the wheat and the tares, and I quote, that all these things spoke Joshua unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spoke he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. There we have it, the parable of the wheat and the tares, laying hidden in plain sight. There are inferences of two seed line in the Old Testament in places such as Isaiah 27, verses 1 and 2, hidden again in parables. In that day, Yahweh, with his sword and great and strong sword, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent. Even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea, the sea of the peoples of the world. In that day sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine. We see that the harvest, the vineyard of red wine, is associated with the destruction of the serpent. That is the day of Yahweh's wrath, to which compare the descriptions of the harvest of Revelation chapter 14. Christ treading the winepress. And the parable at Isaiah 63 verses 1 and 2 which reads, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? He who treads the grapes the harvest of Revelation 14. The destruction of the children of Esau. That's Christ coming from Edom. It's metaphorical, it's allegorical. Christ with dyed red garments, with the blood of his enemies. So it is in Revelation chapter 19. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night. I'll be back next Friday with James chapter 2.